Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show. My name's Amelia and today we have a very cool guest coming from all the way on the other side of the world. We've got Colleen, who is a marine tech on the RV Ocean Explorer. Welcome to Avid Research. Thank you so much for having me. It's very exciting to have someone so far away um, who's doing some really cool stuff. So can you start by telling us what is your job? My job as a marine technician on a research vessel is to make all the sciencey stuff work. So we have all kinds of technology integrated into the ship. And then we have scientists who want to come on board and use that technology. So I have to make sure it's up and running help them collect their data, complete their science goals, and then make sure that they have all the data they need when they go home to analyze and to report on their new discoveries. That sounds pretty cool. How, sorry, what's some examples of some technologies that you're using? Over the years, I've sort of developed a bit of a specialty around seafloor mapping. It's just something that I've just gravitated to over the years. I've had to do a lot of different types of deployments of different kinds of instrumentation all over the globe on several different ships. But that's the thing that's really stuck with me the most. And that's one of the things that I really enjoy doing. So that involves using sonars to sort of map the map the seafloor. We use multi-beam sonar in particular to map the seafloor. And just like if you were going on a road trip, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to take out a map and see where you're going, how long it might take to get there, what you might find along the way. The same kind of thing with a research or exploration expedition. You kind of want to know where things are at. You want to know what it sort of looks like so you can make better informed decisions about where you want to go pinpoint where you want to explore to make sure you find the coolest stuff. Okay, so your job is to kind of help enable researchers who are coming onto a ship, maybe they've got a a once in a lifetime opportunity to use a ship to do some research, and your job is to help enable them with the technology on the ship, make sure it all works and that they can get what they need. Would that be kind of fair? Exactly. Yep. So one of your passions is seafloor mapping, and I'm sure people have kind of heard of sonar. They might not have heard of multi-beam. Are you able to give a bit of a description of how that technology works? Sure. So any kind of sonar uh, works with the basic principle of it emits a sound, and that sound travels through the water at some known, some measured speed. It reaches the seafloor, and then it will bounce back towards the ship, and the time it takes calculated with the measured speed of that sound will give you a range for the seafloor from the ship. And so we do that about a bajillion times a minute as the ship is traveling 10 nautical miles an hour. And we get all of these millions of soundings over the course of the survey that pinpoint where the seafloor is relative to the ship. The ship itself has navigational systems. The sound plus the navigation systems plus the measured sound speed is all calculated in this big black box of magic that gives you this picture. And what it kind of looks like is if you took a paintbrush and dipped it in a bunch of different colors and just waved it over top of the piece of paper, 
that's kind of like what we're doing on the seafloor. We have like each bristle in the paintbrush is like each beam of the multi-beam sonar and each beam points at the seafloor in a slightly different angle and acts kind of like a paintbrush over the seafloor putting lots of diff lots of soundings uh, across the swath as the ship is moving forward we just leave this track called a swath of soundings and when we collect those soundings on one track we turn around come the other direction we call it mowing the lawn we end up making essentially a grid pattern and that gives us an even wider coverage of an area so we can make a couple of passes and map a seamount for example which is an underwater mountain so we're typically looking for features that maybe haven't been explored or haven't been mapped before those are my favorite so underwater mountains volcanoes vent fields ridges canyons, channels, all kinds of cool stuff down there. Only about 17% of the world's ocean has been mapped. So I've just got a lot of job security. <laughs> We're not going to accidentally have suddenly mapped it all. Because <laughs> what we hear a lot, or sort of like the common thing that's said, is that we know more about the surface of the moon than we know about the, the floor of the ocean. Do, is that a like accurate sort of saying that's out there in the community? Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's very accurate because when you look at these big maps that you'll find in a, a university or a classroom or you know any kind of educational institute, you'll see this big old map of the world and it looks like there's all of these mountains and ridges and things throughout the whole ocean and, and you can see all these seafloor features. When you're looking at it from that, you know, 30,000 foot view, you know, it looks like it's mapped. And I think that's where people get this misconception because they see this map. It looks like a pretty fancy map. looks like there's things on the map. So they assume it's mapped, but it's really not. So when you zoom way, way in to the level of where a ship is going to deploy a vehicle or a sensor to go look at that seafloor, to measure something near the seafloor, and you're looking at that level, uh, it becomes a lot more obvious how unmapped the world's ocean is because the 30,000 foot view is on the scale of, of several kilometers. There's a technology called satellite altimetry, which takes satellites, uh, measure the gravitational surface of the ocean, essentially, which more or less sort of forms around the seafloor topography. So where you have a, a high, it could be an indication that there's a seamount below it. And so that's kind of one method that's used to estimate the seafloor topography. But when you want to actually put a, a vessel and a vehicle on that seamount, you need a lot more detail than there might be a blob generally here. So you want to use shipboard sonar to map that, to uncover that, to give it more detail so you can decide which side of the seamount you want to go. How high is the seamount? What kind of shape is the seamount? What kind of habitats might be on that seamount? There's all of these unanswered questions that really start to get revealed once you've mapped it with much higher resolution bathymetry. And what kind of resolution are you able to be mapping at? It varies based on the depths and the conditions in which you're surveying. If you are, you know, very shallow, you're probably going to get generally a higher resolution because the seafloor is much closer to the ship. If you're really, really deep, like full ocean depth, we're talking 11,000 to 12,000 meters, 
then it starts to get a little more challenging. It takes a lot longer for sound to travel that far. And in order to have better resolution, you have to have bigger equipment. And to have bigger equipment, you got to have a bigger boat. So anything that has to do with full ocean depth, it's got to be bigger, it's got to be stronger, and it's generally a lot more expensive. So a lot of the systems that are commonly used are sort of used for the average ocean depth. The average ocean depth is about 4,000 meters. And so a lot of the ships will use technology that can go down to about 6,000 meters because that covers a really wide percentage of the ocean depths. And so you can cover a lot of what's out there. And so it depends on how deep the seafloor is. But we're talking today's age with the latest and greatest, you know, on the order of meters and submeters accuracy and resolution in detecting seafloor objects. Fantastic. So whilst it's not nearly as accurate as we can get on land, obviously, it's still plenty to be able to start sending down vehicles to go have a look. Yeah, absolutely. And then next level of that, so one particular example is a hydrothermal vent field. We'll map an area with the ship, but then we'll get a better idea of where we want to send an underwater vehicle. And we'll take that underwater vehicle down and then we'll have that vehicle then map an area like a vent field and because it's much closer to the seafloor whether it's autonomous or remotely operated then you get an even greater resolution highly detailed map of a much smaller area and that's definitely on the order of centimeters so you know we have the 30,000 foot view with satellite altimetry then we have the you know, meter, submeter accuracy of the shipboard sonars, and we get down below centimeters when we bring the sonars to the seafloor on underwater vehicles. But obviously that's a very time-consuming and, and resource-intensive thing, so we want to be pretty certain that we're sending those vehicles to the right spot in the first place. Exactly. Obviously, working anything to do with the ocean is more challenging because we can't see it, because it, to humans it can be quite a hostile environment. And you're working with a whole range of different kinds of technologies. What does an average day actually look like? Well... It's kind of a hard question to answer because there really is no average day when you're at sea, especially with scientists who change their mind all the time. So you could be having one plan and then they see something new and want to go check something else out and the dive lasts a whole lot longer than you meant to and then they decide they want to survey in a different area and, you know, so you just have to be very adaptable. But generally what my day looks like is getting asked questions before I have a cup of coffee sitting at breakfast trying to eat my cereal, getting asked questions, going to find out what's going on for the day, what's changed, what's what's the plan, sitting down, getting ready to get started, getting asked some more questions, and conducting a survey, putting in some instrumentation, collecting a sound velocity profile, navigating some underwater vehicles, getting asked lots of questions in between that and uh, hopefully taking lunch or dinner break and you know it just sort of goes on from there it's it's sort of a, a non-stop kind of kind of day where it depends on what the weather's doing it depends on what they've found it depends on where they want to go survey next there's just a lot of factors at play that uh, really contribute to no day at sea being anything remotely normal and I'm guessing 
when you're at sea, it's it's not just like a nine to five job. It's not just Monday to Friday. You're going to be working the entire time you're at sea. Yeah. So when we're on an expedition, it's a seven day a week job. And it sort of depends on what you're doing on the ship. But a lot of the maritime crew have sort of a maximum number of hours that they're legally allowed to work, which is 12 typically. So there's always those days where something extra happens or something exciting happens or you got to fix something and it goes a bit longer. Longer. Or if you're a scientist and you have this one research cruise for the year, you're going to work a heck of a lot more than 12 hours. So it just sort of all depends on, you know, what you're doing on board. But on the maritime side, you know, we have a fairly rigid watch schedule because we need to make sure that we have the right folks available to take care of the daily needs of the ship, such as driving the ship, keeping the engines running, cooking the food, you know, so it's fairly routine on the crew side, but on the science side, it's sort of just is focused around the operations. Yeah, it's sort of like smash it all out, get as much as we can out of this one opportunity. Exactly. You mentioned a couple of times that you get asked a lot of questions. What are some of these questions that people are asking you before you've had coffee? (laughs) That sounds so cruel. (laughs) It's just a way of life, you know. When you're a tech, you get to know a lot about a lot of systems. I, I know a heck of a lot. I've done a heck of a lot. I certainly don't know everything. So you just sort of go through the day doing the best that you can to answer as many of the questions as you can. A lot of it relates to technology or to data. So on the technology side, it might be, why can't I print to this printer? How come I can't connect to the Wi-Fi? All the way up to sort of more technical questions regarding data processing, you know, or making a map, or can we get a figure for the navigation software, or can we get contours for, you know, planning the dive? And so it just, it's a whole spectrum of questions. Like I said, no day is the same as the next. So you just you just learn to, to try to absorb as much as you can so you can answer as many of the questions as you can. Yeah. And scientists in general tend to be fairly curious people. So obviously they're going to shed that curiosity around if, if they have the opportunity. Yeah, for sure. So it sounds like you don't just need technical skills, but you obviously need some level of interpersonal skills to be able to deal with people. What are some of the other skills that are essential for you to be able to do your job well? Well, I think being adaptable is probably the number one skill for any kind of marine tech because you have to be able to absorb a lot and learn some lessons so as you as you go through the process of troubleshooting and you figure something out this is this is a quirk that this system has on this particular ship, you know, or understanding why that is and trying to pass that on to your coworkers so that everybody's aware the schedule's constantly changing so you want to survey and then you want to dive and then you want to deploy a sensor package you know you got to be ready to switch gears at a moment's notice and these are not you know easy tasks these are these are like career long learned operations you know you don't just walk in and be a be a marine tech and then just know how to do everything like it takes time to really gain experience in how to operate a whole lot of different systems that do a heck of a lot of different objectives and collect lots of different types of data so you know being a quick learner is really helpful learning from your mistakes is really important you know time is money and when it comes to a research vessel you know you don't want to 
waste a whole lot of time scratching your head when people are standing there waiting to collect data you know so really honing in on the process for troubleshooting is extremely important you want to try to fix things as as reasonably quickly as possible so you can keep the party moving just i think being able to have some patience with yourself when you're working through those things it's so it's very tense to have people standing over your shoulder waiting for a solution so they can continue to do their job so having patience Patience for yourself as well as other people is pretty paramount. That's a fantastic piece of advice and skill to have, especially when you're stuck in a very confined space and ships can be quite intense places and be able to forgive yourself if you make a mistake and forgive yourself enough to have the space to learn from that mistake. Absolutely. I imagine that's not the easiest skill to develop necessarily. No, it's really not because... For example, I wouldn't call myself a perfectionist exactly, but I like to do a really good job at everything. And when I don't do as good a job as I think I could have done, I get very angry with myself. And I sometimes don't express that in the most calm manner either. So, you know, where people could see me maybe being in a bad mood, it's it's 95% of the time I'm just mad at myself. <laughs> so you know making sure that you don't take these things out on other people is pretty important because like you said being in a very close quarters environment things can get heated pretty quickly so just trying to recognize it's okay to not be perfect it's okay if you make a mistake like these things happen and as long as you learn from that and you know try to do the best you can that's really all one could ask for So it sort of sounds like being able to get to know yourself as well as your crew is going to be quite important. Yes, definitely. One thing we forgot to cover is how long are you at sea when you're on an expedition? Well, it all depends. Um, At the moment, I'm a contractor, so I go whenever they call me. So if they have a, a particular expedition, I go for the length of the expedition. In my previous life, I was a full time marine tech, and that involved a rotation. So I would be on the ship for somewhere between two to three months at a time. We wouldn't necessarily be at sea that whole time. It just sort of depends on the cruise schedule. But cruises on average tend to be anywhere from about two to four weeks. It really just depends on the particular expedition and the vessel you're on. You know, Antarctic ships tend to have longer cruises because their season is very short. It's very hard to get everybody on those ships because it's such a remote area. So they tend to do much longer cruises like 30 to 60 day cruises, whereas most Most of the other global research vessels will be on the order of two to four weeks. So I would say, you know, an average of like 25 days, you know, is is about four days too long. (laughs) I say after three weeks, people start getting a little weird. After about 25 days, you could feel it really coming on. And once you're past that 30 day mark, there ain't no turning back. So people get full on strange by that point. And uh, my longest cruise to date was 37 days. And you knew it was time to go into port when seaweed showed up on the salad bar. <laughs> is, there, <laughs> is there any other weird stories you'd like to share? Or is it sort of like what happens at sea stays at sea? I mean, there's definitely 
<laughs> there's definitely a little bit of that because I mean you have to be a little bit crazy to go to see in the first place there are things that you just can't even really fully describe that happen unless you were really there it really is a special experience and I learned that pretty early on when I did some sail training programs as a high school student and I remember even after my very first couple of offshore cruises just coming home and really not knowing who to talk to about it except for my ship you know, and that was back in the day when people wrote letters to each other, if you could hardly imagine, paper and stamps and things. And so, you know, we would we would keep in touch in, in that way because we had this bond over this like crazy weird experience that we shared that we really didn't know how to describe to anybody else. You know, nowadays you have Facebook on your phone in your pocket as you walk around the ship with Wi-Fi out in the middle of the ocean. So you're much more connected now to folks back home than you were. So it's not so much of a mystery, but it definitely is a really special experience. Um, in terms of a story, ugh, I mean, I've been sailing for, you know, 20 years. So, I mean, there's stories I can't even remember at this point. There's so many stories. You sort of touched upon you started sailing when you were in high school. What was your path to get from there to where you are now? Yeah, so I had a really unique situation in high school where I went to vocational aquaculture school and that involved classes that taught us about marine biology and marine technology, marine chemistry, things of that nature. And so I got really interested in that in high school and one of my teachers had done this program with Sea Education Association, which is a, a sail training educational program run out here in the in the east coast of the United States out of Cape Cod. And she had kind of told me about it, said she thought I might, you know, be really interested in that. And I looked it up and I really wanted to do it. So I made it happen. And I enjoyed that so much. I, I did another program with Ocean Classroom, which is a similar organization run also out here in the Northeast U.S. And it just sort of took off from there. I mean, I, I sailed on two schooners doing science and seamanship and just loved being at sea. And so I pursued my college education uh, at Maine Maritime Academy, which is in the state of Maine. So also in the Northeast U.S. here. And I got to learn science and be on boats at the same time. And I really enjoyed it. I just kept enjoying it more, essentially. And so I pursued a few internships as a marine technician intern while I was in college. So I got to go on some global class research vessels and help support science at sea. So it just like everything I've done is just incrementally pointed me in this direction because I really like I really like science. I don't like doing science. I don't I'm never going to be a scientist. I just have too much of a, a logical brain in terms of like running, I, I run operation. I support science. I don't, I don't really do a whole lot of analysis. My brain just doesn't work that way. And so on those internships, I, you know, learned that there really was this whole field of people who support the science objectives out at sea on these big research vessels. And I just decided that's what I wanted to do. And I actually came into it kind of sideways because part of my college education was in small vessel operations, so getting a, a master's license to drive ships. And I got employed by the government agency, NOAA, 
National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration as an able-bodied seaman. So I worked in the deck. I was employed to work in the deck department, and I had worked in the deck department on several boats before that. And it was when I was about to arrive, the captain called me up and said, "Hey, um, I know you're coming to be a deckhand, but like." do you want to be a technician instead? I was like, how did you know? <laughs> That's exactly what I wanted to do. He's like, great. Well, you just get here. We'll figure it out when you get here. Cool. So I got on the ship three weeks later, moved into the tech role, and I have had been a tech ever since. So I really found my passion pretty early on. I consider myself pretty lucky in that regard because, you know, some people it takes takes a long time. And, you know, it's been the kind of job where it's just not the same ever, you know, from one day to the next, from one cruise to the next, from one ship to the next. It's always a little bit different. So that's what really sort of keeps me interested. Uh, I definitely can never see myself just working a plain old office job. Nothing wrong with those. People got to do those. There's lots of important things that happen at desks. But that was just not for me. And so this line of work has kept it really lively and kept the ball rolling. And I learn new things all the time. I, I never stop learning. And that's probably my favorite part about it. I was just about to ask you what your favorite part of your job is and what it is that like helps you get up in the morning. And I think you've just jumped on that one. <laughs> Well, I could I could expand on that and uh, add. I like to survey volcanoes mm-hmm. and uh, other seafloor features that have not yet been mapped. I mean, that's a big motivator for me is being able to help uncover things that have not yet been discovered. Uh, that's that's a big favorite, you know. And I've been part of a number of expeditions where we've mapped a shipwreck or mapped a volcano that we didn't know was there or discovered new seamounts or any kind of other underwater feature that may have even led to finding new species because we discovered a new a new habitat somewhere. So just enabling those discoveries is what really sort of keeps me going on the on the big picture level. And on a daily level you kind of get to see something often if you'd been mapping you'd be seeing things that no one has ever seen seen before and that like that's kind of exciting (laughs) yeah and it really is true because you're really watching the data in real time right in front of your face you know and then you you take that data and you can process it you know right away as soon as it's finished recording so it's really rewarding in the sense that you get an immediate sense of accomplishment after you map something because there was nothing and then there was something and usually that something is really pretty cool so that you know keeps it exciting on the daily level and I think especially in a world where we feel like we don't know everything but it it feels like we know a lot and it sort of feels like we're starting to repeat ourselves a bit and being able to see something new like genuinely new is kind of kind of really cool yeah and I I think that what people don't quite realize is it happens all the time in the ocean because only about 17 percent of the ocean has been explored there's so much more territory that we have barely even scratched the surface of and because that's such a, a huge proportion of the ocean you know, it's not just the seafloor, it's the, the volume of the water column above it. It's this whole volume of the ocean that has sort of yet to be explored. The probability of discovering new things is super, super high. And every time that we go to these areas where it hasn't been mapped or hasn't been seen visually by underwater vehicles, by cameras, uh, visually inspected ground truths, more often than not, we do find something new. Have you got any highlights that really 
stand out? Maybe anything that's happened in the last couple of trips of like really having that experience sort of like of new things? Yeah, I think that probably my favorite survey that I've ever done was off of an island in Tonga called Hunga Tonga Hunga Haapai. I don't know if I butchered that or not, but anyway, we call it HTHH. It is two islands that were joined by a volcano that sprouted up from under the surface of the ocean. And so it formed this new landmass in between these two islands. So it makes one big island now. And we went to survey it about a year and a half after it had erupted. And we did it very systematically. You know, the the charts were clearly, you know, very out of date. So we had to be very sort of cautious with our approach to the area. But with multi-beam sonar, we were able to map, you know, probably about 85% of, of what turned out to be a very large underwater caldera. So that sort of rim that you see uh, at the top of the volcano with the hole in the middle, that's that's the caldera. And this was this huge feature underwater that, you know, the charts didn't even remotely detect. And so you had the feature of the volcano itself above the sea surface, you know, this beautiful, magnificent, like brand new volcano. I mean, how many times do we get to experience that in our lifetimes, you know, out there in the middle of the ocean? And then the multi-beam revealing that it looked very similar under the water as well was just like the coolest thing ever. So we were able to map all the way around it and then a little bit inside it as well, trying to avoid any navigational hazards. So that was that was definitely my favorite survey you know it's really one thing to find things strictly under the water you know you look out at the sea surface and you see nothing for miles and and then you see these pictures of mountains and and ridges and things underneath the ship that's really cool but then to to do that but then face this like beautiful geologic feature uh was absolutely stunning i imagine there would have been a bit of excitement on board the ship as well with this yeah, for some reason, the, the bridge crew were all of a sudden very excited about multi-beam survey. <laughs> so, Have they not been excited until then? <laughs> you know, I get mixed reviews. It really depends on what we're doing and which way the sea state is going. So this one was, uh, was very uh, enthusiastic from the bridge crew. So uh, that was a real treat to be able to you know, work with them so cooperatively to, to do this. We did it in sort of two major chunks two very long days of daylight surveying and the results were really phenomenal and we did that actually in collaboration with some folks at NASA and we were able to actually broadcast the multi-beam data to those folks uh, so that they could tune in and sort of see what was coming in as it was happening. So it was really like a, a quite a, a spontaneous and exciting survey because we were we were there for a completely different purpose to do completely different science we got weathered out from doing what we were planning to do and like i said in the beginning plans always change so we went and beat feed over to this cool feature and and did that instead you know while we were not able to do our primary objectives we captured this like amazing survey just because of of the weather that's the most delightful accident (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's been other ships that have been back there since and, you know, have done other follow up studies like going into the the above surface 
crater, you know, going into the lake and sampling the water in there and geological samples on the on the volcano and, and aerial surveys and satellite surveys. And so there's been a lot of workup around this feature because it's one of only, I, I believe, two that are recently formed volcanoes, island volcanoes that exist. So that's amazing because it's easier to think that geology and volcanoes are kind of like they don't really happen anymore there's something that happened back in the day and the idea that they're still happening and we still live on a very geologically active planet is well it's important to remember but it's also kind of cool yeah and that's where i think the i mean another another experience i had was surveying off of the coast of the big island of hawaii a couple of years ago after the big kilauea eruptions and how all of those lava flow actually sort of formed new land on the southern sort of tip of the island southeastern and we were able to you know map some of the new underwater terrain there and then uh, the nearby active underwater volcano Loihi which is a place that is studied by many many scientists that is essentially the, the sort of like you know next next Hawaiian island it'll take much longer than our lifetime to to realize that but you know volcanoes a very exciting geology <laughs> but uh you know it was certainly interesting to be sort of part of like a, a historic geologic period yeah for sure yeah you get to own that one yeah <laughs> is there anything that you wish people understood about your job or that you wish like the general public understood about ocean exploration i think my biggest wish for scientists who go on research vessels is to understand it's never a good idea to talk to the marine tech until they've had their coffee it's just better for you better for us better for everybody <laughs> i think i'm just i'm gonna butt in there and say that's probably like a good global like not just on ships <laughs> if someone hasn't had their coffee give them a break <laughs> yeah 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 i think well, i think one thing that happens on ships and i mean we've all done it like i've certainly done it to other people but we just tend to never stop talking about work so even when we're at the lunch table dinner table breakfast table what have you somebody's always going to be talking about what we're doing for the day or what thing broke or what needs to happen or whatever and it's just sort of a way of life when you live and work at your workplace so that's just a hazard of the job and we all sort of try our best to not do that but you know we all succumb to that at some point i think what i would say to the more general population about ocean exploration is that it's just not done you know it is not finished there is so much territory out there that has not been explored or if it has been explored the data is not publicly available you have a lot of oil and gas industries all over the world that have done tons and tons of seafloor mapping, for example, looking for good places to drill for resources or places to mine for, for precious metals, but they don't share that data. So the academic and related institutes, governments, we essentially have to end up going and, and repeating their work because they don't share it with anybody. So if the oil and gas and government agencies, you know, navies and things, you know, just shared their data that they collected, probably, probably another quarter of the ocean, you know, could probably already be mapped by now. Um, but we just don't know it. We just don't know it. That's um, massive. I'm going to go on an expedition soon that to an area that we know for sure has been mapped, but we are now going to have to repeat it 
because they won't give us the data. So this is a global problem. And this is not not any one country. This is a, a global industry situation. You know, these commercial companies don't want to give up their data because they don't want people to know what's in their territory. You know, and I understand that. But if we can develop, you know, better partnerships with them over over the next however many years to try to, you know, get some of that data for the less sensitive areas, you know, if they decide they're already not going to drill somewhere, let's share that data. You know, we could really narrow things down and, and focus our efforts where it really, 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 really hasn't been mapped yet, rather than having to repeat work so that we can then conduct exploration for the sake of science. So yeah, it's just, it's just not fully explored yet. There's so much to do. There's so much to see. And every time we go look, we find new stuff. And whilst obviously that would be incredibly frustrating, knowing an area has been mapped and having to do it again so that the information can be more publicly available, it's important for people to remember that this is kind of exciting too. And there's a lot of opportunity and potential out there. It's really awesome. Definitely, yeah. Is there any advice if there was a young person listening to this and they're like, that sounds so awesome. I love science, but I don't love, you know, doing it myself. And I love a bit of technical stuff. Boats are cool. Is there any advice you'd be able to give to young people who think that a similar career path could be for them? Yeah, the most common advice I give is to try to get an internship or some kind of work experience at the even at the lowest level that you can just to see if you even really like it you know I have several friends that are shipmates that have been going to sea for a long time and they get seasick every time they go <laughs> go out to sea but they still do it anyway you know you need to know if you get seasick and if you can deal with it before you commit to a career of being at sea otherwise you're going to be severely disappointed so you know being able to get any experience that is remotely related at some point in your educational career will really help you focus in on whether or not it's a good fit or if there's maybe an even more narrow path that you would like to go down and on some more specific direction. When I was in college, I worked on a few boats. I got internships on a couple of ships. I had a cooperative experience on another ship. I worked on sail training vessels. I worked on cruise ships and then I've worked on ever since I've worked on research vessels. But, you know, having those experiences on those other ships, you know, really rounded out my experience, gave me other skills that actually relate to what I do, like customer service, for example, from the cruise ships. I People don't realize that the marine tech is, is a customer service oriented role because you have to deal with people's needs and wants all the time and try not to get frustrated by them. and you know, so those different experiences not just taught me some other sort of peripheral skills, but also really showed me that that's not what I wanted to do. And I definitely wanted to lean more in this direction. So it's not just about finding out what you do want to do. It's also about ruling out what you don't want to do. So getting any kind of educational or cooperative or intern experience, the earlier, the better. That's fantastic advice because it's so easy to fall in love with a romanticized vision of something and maybe look at some mm-hmm. pretty happy ships that are on a really calm sea in the middle of like mm-hmm. some lovely sunny Pacific and <laughs> it's not always like that. Yeah, it's pretty much really boring and dull most of the time. Like when you look out the window, it's just ocean as far as the eye can see for 30 days. You know, that's what 90% of the time is sort of like, you know, 
but I in particular get so focused on what I'm doing. Sometimes I don't even remember to go outside for a couple of days. I mean, that's just what happens. But, you know, there's also lots of sort of more dull time like that. But then that makes the really exciting stuff really stand out. When you get a really amazing sunset at the end of a long day or when you weather a storm with your shipmates and it bonds you together. You know, it makes those other more extreme experiences really stand out and be remember and be more memorable. Yeah. No, that sounds lovely. That's really cool. Before we start to wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to share? Anything we haven't covered that you'd really like to kind of squeeze in here? One piece of advice for anyone going to sea, no matter what your position is, keep the captain happy. If the captain asks you to do something, you stop what you're doing and you go do what they asked you to do. That is the number one rule on ships. Don't screw it up. And I think part of the challenge with that might be that there's not many analogs of captains on hmm. dry land. There's not, you don't have someone who holds together a, a team and a ship quite in the same way that a captain's role is yeah. on a ship. So it's not like your boss. <laughs> no, no, exactly. Because the captain is your parent. They're your boss. They are your coworker. They are your friend. They are your confidant. They, you know, just, they wear so many different hats and it's because it's not just where you work, it's where you live. That's what makes it so different. But also you know, the responsibility that the captain has is not just to get the job done, it's to, to bring everybody home safe. So it's a much, much different responsibility than any position on land for sure. And it's one to be very well respected. Yeah, I think especially for people who've never been to sea before, that's a really key piece of advice. I don't know how we can get that out to people, but I like it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's also a really uh, important aspect of morale you know if you have a captain that is just not pleased with what's going on you are gonna know about it you are gonna feel that right away so keeping the captain happy making sure things are going smoothly that you are doing your part in the puzzle that is the expedition you know that's really in everybody's good benefit so just to wrap it up, have you got a shout out for someone or a business, maybe someone's doing a really awesome job or maybe a crew that's doing a really good job that you'd like to give a virtual high five to? Yeah, I mean, I would just like to thank all of the seafarers out there that have kept all of the ships running. You know, a lot of people don't realize that all of our daily goods are everything from toilet paper to rubber duckies to sneakers, you know, that gets brought around the world on ships. And I think that people don't quite realize that or lose sight of that. And a lot of the folks that have been hard hit by the pandemic this year have been seafarers. They've had to endure much longer rotations at sea away from their families, often in distant parts of the world with, you know, very difficult restrictions of getting on and off the ships and quarantining before going home or before going to work. And it's just, it's been quite the mess for everybody. But I'll a lot of folks have really, you know, dug down and adapted and persevered to, you know, really keep the globe running. So I just, yeah, I want to shout out to my shipmates uh, working in the shipping industry for keeping it all together for the rest of us. Because we are really relying on all of those goods coming in right now, particularly on a like little island like Australia. Absolutely. We need that stuff to come in and we don't see, we see the ships come in at dock but we don't see what's going on like while they're at sea and it's so easy to forget yeah 
Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been a pleasure and it's been very cool to hear about a different part of the world. Yeah, no problem. I'm glad to be here. If you like this podcast, you're a little legend and you should check out our website at avidresearch.com.au and sign up to our amazing email newsletter. No spam, only email updates and maybe some exclusive content sometime. Follow us on social media to ask us questions or just to dob in people for interviews. 